Hello, and welcome to another virtual author chat at the Poison Pen Bookstore. I'm John Charles, and today the Poison Pen is delighted to have with us virtually four of the brightest stars in the cozy mystery genre, Winnie Archer, Maya Corrigan, Amanda Flower, and Sherry Harris, each of whom will be sharing with us today a little bit about the latest in their popular series. Before we begin, I do want to let those listening in know that the Poison Pen does have copies of all of the author's new books, and we would be delighted to hold them for you at the bookstore to pick up or put them in the mail to you. Just give us a call at the Poison Pen or go online, and we will be happy to connect you with these really fun new reads. And now I'd like to welcome Winnie, Maya, Amanda, and Sherry. Thank you. Hi, thank you for having us. Thank you for joining us today. My first question is, like many readers, I'm fascinated by who an author was before they started writing, because sometimes that shapes their writing career. So I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself before you became a published author, and why don't we start with Winnie? Okay, um, well, I was a middle school teacher for a long time, and a mom of five, and I started writing after... I decided to stay home after my second son because my entire salary was going to daycare. Um, so that was kind of the impetus to keep my brain from turning to mush in toddler world. And mysteries were a natural thing for me to write because I grew up on mysteries and, you know, Nancy Drew and Bobsy Twins and Agatha Christie. And, you know, so when it came time to actually think, well, I can do this writing a mystery was the way to go. And I've been really fortunate to be able to leave the classroom. I loved my years teaching, but I'm happy to be able to be a writer full-time now. That's great. How about you, Maya? I, I always wanted to be a writer and wrote my first novel when I was 13. However, mm -hmm. you know, um, money sort of led me to adopt a different career. I, uh, I got a PhD in English and I taught um, English literature, American literature and writing for about 20 years, including a course in the literature of mystery and detection. And uh, I have always, my mother was a great fan of mystery writers and would come home with a stack of mystery books from the library every week. And so she kind of hooked me on mysteries. Uh, I spent a few more years trying to make money before I finally decided I really have to get into writing if I'm ever going to do it. But I have a number of unpublished manuscripts in my drawer, as I'm sure a lot of us do. Uh, so it took a while, but eventually I got to do what I wanted to do when I was 13. <laughs> That's great. Amanda, what about you? Um, my story is pretty similar to Maya's. I pretty much always wanted to be a writer since I was a tween, like 11, 12, 13. Um, so my dad uh, was an electrical engineer and I told him this <laughs> and he was a very practical man. So he sat me down at the kitchen table and we made a list of every career I could have until I make it as a writer, uh, as my, um, you know, because he said he wasn't going to take care of me until I make it. Um, so I was probably 11 and he did that and we came up with a list and we ended on librarian. So at 11 years old, um, my dad and I like set a course for the rest of my life, essentially, like we made a plan, which I executed. Um, and then so I was a librarian um, 
until 2018 is when I felt confident enough to retire from libraries. And since then, I've been writing full time. And then mystery for me too, like Maya, was the natural choice because that was what my mom read. And she was a voracious reader. Same thing. Huge stacks of mysteries from the library. Um, and I would sneak them <laughs> when I was a kid, uh, take them out of her stack. So, and I really have never considered writing any other genre. I told my agent, you know, I'll, I'll write, like, if you want me to write a space mystery or a Amish mystery or a historical mystery, I was like, as long as I can like kill someone and then solve the crime, I'm in. <laughs> but I don't want to write outside my genre. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Um, Sherry, what about you? Yeah, I love hearing your stories. That's so fun. Um, I have wanted to be a writer since I was really young. My favorite books when I was a kid were the Betsy Tacy books by Maud Hart Lovelace. And Betsy wanted to be a writer, so I wanted to be Betsy, so I wanted to be a writer. And, and like the rest of you, our house was full of mysteries and thrillers and romantic suspense. And we still, you know, go, have you read this? Have you read that? And um, love to exchange books. And um, I was in marketing for a while and for a financial planning company. And so writing ads is pretty much fiction too. <laughs> so, I and then um, my husband was in the Air Force and I followed him around. It's very difficult to have a career. And I started writing. And like Maya, there's a book or two in the proverbial drawer that will never see the light of day before I got my first series published. Hmm. Okay, let's switch gears and have you talk about what's going on today, your current release. What can you tell readers about your new book and your series? And we'll start with you, Sherry, this time. Okay, well, Rum and Choke just came out on December 27th. It's the fourth book in the Chloe Jackson Sea Glass Saloon Mysteries. And um, Chloe was a librarian, a children's librarian in Chicago and made a promise to a friend that if anything happened to him, she would go help his grandmother run her beach bar. So unfortunately something happens. She goes down to the Florida Panhandle to help this poor little granny run her bar and instead finds this feisty, southern, strong, 70-year-old woman who doesn't want her there. Mm -hmm. And so she has to kind of lie her way into staying. But as the series goes on, they find some common ground. They learn to care for each other and their bond between her grandson and Chloe's friend. And so in this book, Vivi, who is the bar owner, and the bartender convince Chloe to represent them in the bar back obstacle course, which is going to be in 10 days. And um, she says, okay. And then they tell her that other bars hire ringers. So professional athletes to come in to run the obstacle course. And one of them ends up dead. And Chloe and a friend discover the body and it looks very bad for them. And 
In the meantime, there's a treasure hunt for a lost pirate's treasure, and she's trying to hire new help for the bar, but keeps get, telling them where to find other jobs. So it, it was a lot of fun writing. It sounds great. Um, Amanda, you have a new addition to your Amish series. What's that like? Um, yeah, the newest one is Honeymoons Can Be Hazardous. And it's the fourth book in the Amish Matchmakers series. Um, for those who might not know, the Amish Matchmakers series is a spinoff of the, the longer running Amish Candy Shop Mysteries, um, which there's eight books in it now, and there'll be at least 10 um for the candy shop um and i think there's two more of the matchmaker as well um but it is about it, they are so much fun to write because i call them my buddy books um because um they are really two best friends loose although my main character is millie fisher who is an amish widow um, and I was also the matchmaker of her Amish community where she helps young Amish couples meet each other and um, talk to their parents about whether or not they want to get together and the whole courting process in the Amish. Um, and her best friend, Louis Hun Henry, is not Amish. She's been uh, married four times. Uh, she loves costume jewelry. She has purple hair. She's wild and crazy. And they're both in uh, about 68 years old. Um, so they just get in all kinds of hijinks together. And in this latest book, um, throughout the series, Lois has, uh, referred to her la latest deadbeat husband, <laughs> the last one she had, um, as Roxino guy, um, in Cleveland is where the Roxino casino is. And that's where she met Roxino guy and she married him the same weekend and was divorced within a week because she put him <clears throat> in the swimming pool. So he shows up in Amish country with a new young hot bride on his on his hip, and he's kind of flaunting it around. And she is not too happy about it. Lois uh, isn't, and um, she has some words with him. And then, unfortunately, she has some she has some remorse about her words. So she wants Millie to come with her to to his resort he's staying at to apologize. And they do that, and while they're there, a cuckoo clock bird falls on his new wife. So now <laughs> Lois is, you can see there's the cuckoo clock. <laughs> Lois is a main suspect because everyone in the village knows she was a, pretty upset, and she was also there when the death happened. So it's a, and there's a bunch of like weird sheep that follow them around too. It's very quirky. So, which is very me. <laughs> uh, Maya, what's new with Five Ingredients? Okay, so what's new is the latest book. It's the eighth in the series, and it is called Bake Awe. Uh, <laughs> the series features a young woman who had previously been a cookbook publicist in New York who moves in with her grandfather. He lives on the eastern shore of Maryland near the Chesapeake Bay. And for they are both at a crossroads when she moves in with him. She doesn't know what's left, what's next for her because in one weekend she quit her job and discovered her fiance cheating. 
So she has come to settle her life and her mother has wanted her to go there to put granddad on a more healthy diet because he's been kind of down in the dump since his wife died about five years before and just eating fast food or junk food. And so Val and granddad uh, learn to live with each other in the course of several books uh, in this series. This is the first book in which I take them out of Bayport, Maryland. It's been a, a typical cozy in, in that it takes place in a small town and uh, with a limited set of um, characters. But in this book, they are volunteers at the Maryland Mystery Fan Fest, which has been organized by Val's best friend. It, it includes the usual panels, signings, charity auctions that you find at any kind of mystery fan gathering, but also a bake-off and a murder. So I was kind of interested in exploring the whole idea of what would happen if, when a bunch of mystery fans who love murder on the page confront an actual murder in their midst. So some of them, uh, just to give you a little background on the murder before I give the reactions, uh, there is a bake-off at the fan fest, which is not a usual event. Uh, and the contestants, who include Granddad, who has a Kadra Cook recipe column that he writes, the contestants have to play the roles of cooks to famous detectives. So Granddad has been given the assignment of being Fritz, who is the gourmet chef to um, Nero Wolf. And his competition includes Mrs. Hudson, who cooks for Sherlock Holmes, and uh, Bunter, who is played by someone who's gone to the culinary institute classes. So Granddad is, has stiff competition, but he finds a treasure that helps him uh, actually get a five ingredient Nero Wolf recipe. So he's in his element now, he never cooks with more than five ingredients. And he and the woman who plays Mrs. Hudson have a lot of rivalry going. And after the Bake Off, um, as everyone has gone to sleep after the first night of the fest, Val wakes up to the sound of a whistling tea kettle and goes to investigate. It's coming from the room next to hers. And that's where the woman who played Mrs. Hudson, Cynthia Sweet, is lying dead with the whistling tea kettle next to her. So that's the basic setup. And the fest, some of the fest goers just figured this is a murder game that the organizers have set for them. Others are actually thinking of all the different possibilities, you know looking at comparisons to locked room mysteries and Christie plots. Um, one of the things I enjoy doing with this is um, I included a true crime case uh, that actually happened on the uh, uh, Maryland's Eastern shore, which occurred after a murder mystery dinner and which two people who attended the dinner uh, go to their room and then one of them is found dead. And this happened oh, about 10 years ago or so. So I included that, that mystery was solved. The one in my book wasn't. Um, so it, this was a lot of fun to write. It reflects my love of mystery events and of classic mysteries with a lot of echoes of Holmes and Poirot, 
false identities, wills and inheritance, reenactments of the crime. I had a, had a ball and I wrote it because I couldn't go to any mystery events for two years. <laughs> That's great. Um, Lenny, what's um, happening with bread and murder? Okay, so my uh, series is the Breadshop Mysteries. This is the first one, Needed to Death. And this is the eighth one that came out in November, Bread Over Troubled Water. You have to love the punny titles. Um, the eighth, well, so the series is about Ivy Culpepper, Penelope Branford, and Olaya Solis. I, I always uh, write about female relationships, mothers and daughters and aunts and grandmothers and friends and you know, that's just uh, really important to me. And so Ivy Culpepper returns home to Santa Sofia, which is a fictional town on the central California coast named after my daughter, Sophia, and uh, after her mother unexpectedly passes. And so she ends up forming this friendship with the octogenarian uh, zany woman across the street. So a lot of us have that in common with these older, awesome female characters. Um, and that's Mrs. Branford. And then Elias Elise owns the bread shop, Yeast of Eden. And so Ivy begins uh, a, a class there, and that's how she kind of becomes associated. And in the eighth book, they, she and her uh, fiancé, Miguel Baptista, who's a restaurateur, um, are having an engagement party. And, you know, there's a dead body that <laughs> Agatha the pug, who is modeled after my pug, uh, Bean, but Agatha's on all of the covers, which is fun, and, and she noses around in the park where they're going to have this party and discovers this dead body, and, uh, you know, it's tied to the bread shop because people, because he, this victim, had been at the bread shop earlier that morning, and there's this suspicion that it happened there, possibly connected to the bread, so Ivy gets involved because, you know, her friend Olaya is potentially accused so it's a lot of fun each of your series is being marketed um, as cozy mysteries for those that are listening in that may not be familiar with this subgenre how would you define a cozy mystery what do you think are the key ingredients you need to have and I'll just open it up to whoever wants to start well, I we all go at the same time. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'll just throw out a couple because you all will have others, but usually an amateur sleuth in a small town or a tight knit neighborhood in a big city that um, usually has some kind of unusual career, perhaps. So I'll leave it at that and let you all take it. <laughs> well, there's a set of things a cozy mystery is not. Uh, so it's never gory. Uh, there isn't excessive, well, there isn't violence aside from the murder, of course. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's never anything that you actually, uh, never in a scene where you actually experience the reality of a murder or violence. There's also never uh, an any cuss words that we want we want all our grandmothers to be able to read these books and uh, there's also never any explicit sex on the page it's just a set of taboos which we I guess we all adhere to 
that about sums it up, I think. Yeah. I would just add that also it's, this usually has a humorous tone, I think. Mm-hmm. And there's um, usually like the side characters are really important to the protagonist's life. Like even if they're not involved directly in the murder, she takes them along because the people in her life, and I'm saying her because that's most common. There are male cozy leads. Um, she'll take them along throughout the series and you learn about their life. And eventually probably each one of them is tied to a murder at some point <laughs> if the series goes on long enough. <laughs> and usually justice is restored at the end mm-hmm. of the book. Um, yeah, so, and they so they wrap up that story. They might have ongoing um character arcs with the different people in the books but the mystery will be resolved by the end of the book it's worth saying i think that the big tip off to the reader that there is humor are those titles many yeah. of which are puns good puns groanable puns but it's, <laughs> it's a sort of sign that this is going not going to be super serious mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about what anchors your different series. I think sometimes it's called a hook or um, the theme or whatever you want to call it. Can you elaborate a little bit on your particular theme or hook for your new series, your series that you're writing? And what made you choose that particular? Um, so my hook uh, for this series and then the, also the Amish candy shop uh, that it stem from was Amish culture um by and large um I when I the first book that I wrote for Kensington that was Amish was in the candy shop and it's called Assaulted Caramel I think it came out 2015 or 16 15 maybe um and it was like right after like I had had this big talk with my agent that I was like quitting Amish (laughs) (laughs) because I had written so many Amish uh, books for different publishers Um, and this opportunity came and now I've written an additional 20 some Amish mysteries after that time Um, but I used to live in Amish country so that's kind of how I live in Ohio and even right now I live an hour and a half away from Holmes County where the primary Amish community lives in Ohio. Um, So I go down there all the time. Um, And even where I live, I see Amish all the time, like roofing and stuff. It's just part of Ohio culture. Um, So that's kind of how I got into it. And then for this series, I just wanted to make it, the, the candy shop series is you know, a New Yorker coming to Amish country to take over a candy shop. So she's like, oh, fish out of water, you know, your standard cozy situation. And when they asked me to write a spinoff, I wanted it to be as different from that as possible because I didn't want people to be like, oh, it's the same book in the same place, you know. So this is someone that grew up there. She's in her 60s. She's a different generation uh when Amish culture was even stricter so it's like she has a completely different worldview than my my other character and also she's a matchmaker so it's really fun to also show people um how the Amish navigate romance um because I, I think a lot of people think that Amish um are arranged marriages and they're not 
Uh, they're not at all. Um, they definitely, I'm sure just like any parent are like, Hey, what about that person? <laughs> you know, but like, it's not like a culture, like you're going to marry this person you've never seen before. No, they have a whole courting process where they get to know a person. So it's been fun to, to share that. Well, I, my hook is the five ingredient idea. Each book has five suspects, five clues, and granddad's five ingredient recipes. And I came to write that because uh, I had written a book that um, was not uh, part of a series. I thought of it as a standalone. And then I began to hear from a lot of people that publishers were looking for series. and and in particular for cozy mysteries that, and they were open to uh, previously unpublished writers who would submit a proposal. So I started to think about what, how I could make cozy, how I could cozy up this previously somewhat dark uh, murder mystery. And of course my choices were crafts, cats, or dog, where I mean, where cats includes dogs, or um, cooking. And the only thing that I really knew anything about was cooking, um, but I not, and I could never write a series, I think, in which the main character runs a restaurant or is a gourmet cook or a caterer because I know nothing about any of those things. I only know how to put dinner on the table rather quickly for a family, which I did for decades. And so I started thinking about a different uh, hook not someone who necessarily has a profession as a cook, although it turns out that my main character does uh, run a cafe, but the idea that the recipes included would be simple ones, because very often in some of the cozies where you have a caterer, there are some pretty elaborate recipes included that I, for one, would never even attempt. So the idea that I could go back to my collection of easy recipes and include them in the book was uh, part of the reason why I enjoyed writing the five ingredient mysteries. Um, my first series is a dressmaking. So it's kind of Project Runway meets Small Town Texas. And that's because I, when I first started thinking about a cozy mystery series and what possible hook I could do, sewing is the first thing that came to mind. My mom taught me to sew early on. And I think I completed my first full dress on my own when I was about 10 or 11. And um, so I enjoy sewing all I, I used to when I had time <laughs> and made all, you know, a lot of kids clothes for my children and things like that. So that was an obvious choice. And then the next one, um, similarly to you, Maya, cooking, you know, I, I like food, I like cooking, I like bread. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, when I was trying to think of a different hook, the bread shop idea versus a traditional bakery is what came to mind. And um, people don't really think about Mexico as having a bread tradition, but they really do. And so that was a different spin because the bakery is owned by a woman from Mexico and my husband is Mexican-American first generation. So I love tying in that, you know, my family's culture in that respect. And then um, I have another series where my character is a bibliomancer, which is an ancient divination where you use a book to foretell the future or tell something about the past. And so I just, I love the um, book tie-in with that particular series. I um, 
I think it was about when I was writing the seventh book in the Sarah Winston Garage Sale Mysteries, my editor at Kensington said, hey, let's think about a new series. And so we started tossing ideas back and forth and we went through Chinese restaurant, no, um, a senior center, no, um, a writer's retreat, no. And then one day he said, how about a bar in Key West? And I was like, I have never been to Key West, but I'm going in four days, ironically, <laughs> for the first time. But my friend Lucy Burdett writes a fabulous series set in Key West. And so I said, well, I don't know much about Key West, but how about the panhandle of Florida? I've been visiting since the late 80s. My parents lived there. Um, for a long time, and we were stationed there when my husband was in the Air Force. That I know, and he's and and then I was telling him, you know, it's called the Emerald Coast. It's called Lower Alabama. It's called the Redneck Riviera. And he's like, "Yes, let's do that." <laughs> the series was born. <laughs> um, each of you have described your series in the setting a little bit, but can we go back to that and? dig a little bit deeper. When you chose the setting for your series, I know a lot of authors go the fictional route and some choose the real route. Can you talk about your setting, whether you it's based on a real, if it's fictionalized, whether you went real? Setting is the overall question, so we'll go with that. I'll go first this time. Yeah. Um, so my settings I have multiple series and I have only one that's set in a real place. And that's my Lola Cruz PI series. And that was set in Sacramento. I lived there for a long time. I researched, I went to the places that I wrote about. And even so, I got emails saying, that's not correct. <laughs> and so after that, I just decided, okay, I'm going to go fictional with my settings, which is what I did. And so I created small towns similar to towns that I know. So uh, Santa Sofia would be similar to Capitola, for example, or kind of a cross between Santa Cruz and Santa Barbara. And Devil's Cove in my uh, book magic series on the Outer Banks is kind of like Roanoke near Hatteras. And um, Bliss, Texas is just, you know, small town anywhere, Texas. And so I love the small town setting. And that's always what I operate in with my cozy series and my um, mystery series with cozy elements rather than a big city and a with with tight-knit community which was mentioned earlier with the exception of that Lola Cruz uh, series and, and that's because I, I live in a small town it's super quaint. I didn't get that. Could you try again? I live in a small town that's really um, quaint and I love to write about similar and you know the, the close-knit community and the quirky characters and the beach in particular minus the Texas setting. <laughs> I I never lived in a small town. I, I grew up in a city, the big city, New York, and uh, now I live in a suburb and after that I lived in a suburb of Washington. So but we always went to the beach from our suburb in Washington and headed to the uh, what's called the Delmarva Peninsula, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia. And each of them has beach property, but always when we were making that trip, we went through the um, 
the eastern shore of Maryland, which is full of really picturesque, very historical towns, many of them dating back to colonial times. It was a, a fishing area and a farming area, and to a certain extent, it still is. I mean, these little towns are surrounded by farmland. People make their living from the catch of the bay. And so it had everything it needed to, for a, um, a good setting uh, for a cozy mystery. Uh, and the model for my town, which is fictional for the same reason that Melissa's town is fictional. Uh, the model is, is a bit like St. Michael's, Maryland, or Chestertown, Maryland, which are, you know, kind of small towns. And but particularly St. Michael's is one where uh, that attracts a lot of tourists. They have antique shops. They have people who go duck hunting and fishing. And they also have the nearby terrific estates on the water uh, that attract rich people. So it's, it was not unusual in the early 2000s for Donald Rumsfeld uh, and Dick Cheney, both of whom had estates uh, on the Chesapeake Bay there, to walk around with shoulder to shoulder with watermen, which is what they call the people who make their, who are fishing in the bay. I mean, so it's a real mix of people. And that's one of the reasons why I chose it. And it's very easy to bring a whole new group of people in. Uh, they go to a town festival or they're there to, uh, you know, for looking for a wedding venue because there is all these picturesque places by the water. So. I was able in the course of the first seven books just to use the people either who were in the town already as they encountered these people who did not live in the town but came there for various purposes. And of course, one of them always dies. Um, in my series, um, and particularly this one, of course it was the Amish community. So um, it was really determined there's lots of different Amish communities in the state of Ohio, but the largest is in Holmes County. Um, and I picked that because that's where, when I was a librarian in Amish country, that's where I was. So I know the area. Um, the town of Harvest is fictional, uh, but I do use the entire county. So I describe the villages of like Sugar Creek and Berlin that are well-known tourist spots um, as accurately as possible. But for my main little village, I wanted to have more control, you know, like put my candy shop there and put the playground where I needed it when I lost Jethro the pig, who's like a main character. <laughs> so like there's a graveyard, you know, and all these different things that I needed for to move my story along that um, in comparison with the historical series I write for Emily Dickinson, I do not have any wiggle room because it's historical and it's Amherst, Massachusetts is a real place that people know very well. So like in that series, I'm looking at historical maps and, you know, things like that. And I have to be really accurate. So it's nice to like have a break, you know, from that with this series to, you know, and also the fact that that series more serious too. So this one, I can have a pig running through it and no one cares. <laughs> I can't really do that in the other series. <laughs> um, I, um, like I said, put it, used the panhandle of Florida, but I made up a town 
There's a little town called Grayton Beach, which often is um, on the list of best beaches in the world. Um, it has this just beautiful white sand and it's very pristine. And so I, near Grayton Beach is the town of Grayton Beach. And it's a lot of it's, it's just a tiny little town and it's rustic and um, fishermen settled from New England down here a long time ago. And so it's kind of based on that, but it's kind of my idealized version of it that it's a, a beach town that's affordable for people, to, you know, teachers or painters or writers to live in. And um, I do use the real town of Destin, which is next to it, and um, go to some of the places in Destin that are real restaurants or beaches or parks or, or things, but the town, which I'd love to live in, is fictional. <laughs> I want to live there too, an affordable beach town. That's exactly. <laughs> it's each of you has been writing series. Um, so my next question for you is, can you talk a little bit about the challenges of writing a series? Do you always know it's going to be a certain number of books? Um, do you sometimes, once you've gotten into the series, realize you've written things that you can't remember? So the overall question is writing series. Uh, I think it's... Um... It's an interesting challenge because I'm sure you all have had the same experience. My first contract um, for the Garage Sale Mysteries was for three books. And so, you know, I, I wrote those three books. I had a character arc all planned out. And if I had known there was going to be more, I probably wouldn't have ended the third book the way I did. Um, so you kind of have to always write to the end of your contract, but leave openings for more stories if there are going to be more. I think that's the biggest challenge of writing a series for me and, and remembering what kind of car they had in the first book. <laughs> or what I, color hair or what color what eyes color. or any number of things. Yeah, I would, I would say similar, you know, I, um, my dressmaking series ended at book six, and I didn't know it was going to end. So I didn't get the opportunity to wrap things up the way I would have liked to. Luckily, I've just gotten the rights back and I'm going to be reissuing those, which is nice and I can continue them. Um, but yeah, it's hard to know how to wrap up a plot line or an arc between people, especially a romantic arc, if you don't know how many books you might be able to continue the series with. So that's a definite challenge. And then for me, my memory as I get older is terrible anyway. So remembering all of those little details is yeah, terrible nightmare, <laughs> difficult. Yeah, I only have one series. So remembering the details is a little easier for me, but um, I also only had a three book contract and thought that was going to be the end of it. It was a total shock when I, you know, when I heard that the publisher wanted more books. And for me, the way that I keep engaged is to have a little reset after a set of books. So starting with the fourth book, I, I decided to tap into my background a little bit, and that was called The Telltale Tart. And it has to do with 
a lot to do with people who are Poe fans, and that's the, the set of people among whom there is a victim and a murderer. And then threw in a little history with the um, Titanic in the fifth book. And again, I thought that was going to be the last one. Nope some more, would you do a Halloween book and a Christmas book? So I had a little fun with the, um, with uh, costuming in the ha Halloween book where characters dress as ghosts or people who are haunted from literature. And what was next? Uh, the Christmas book, Ginger Dead Man, where there was a, uh, where the, there was a festival uh, dedicated to Charles Dickens and a Christmas Carol. So I've been able to do a little reset as each new contract comes in with, uh, you know, kind of a different point of view and uh, bringing in new characters, especially starting with the seventh book. And they're going to continue on, well, sixth book, starting with the sixth book. I have a whole set of new, a new group of characters who moved to town. So a little reset now and then always helps with a series. Yeah, I would say um, the memory thing is a major issue for me, especially if you if you have a long running series. And um, if I had written a character Bible way back, you know, when I started writing the first Amish candy shop book, I think I wrote it in 2014. It would make my life a lot easier right today um just to know who their names and how they're all the Amish people are related to each other and colors of eyes are another problem I have um so that and then one of the great things about being a cozy writer is like our fans are so in love with our characters and our places and our stories so it is hard when you write a series um because as an author, I think sometimes readers think it's our choice that a series may come to an abrupt end um, and we don't tie everything up. And, you know, I definitely still have series uh, that ended abruptly because publishers went out of business, you know, different smaller press early in my career. Um, and people are like, when are the, when's the next book? And you're just like, I can't do anything, you know, like, like, a, and it's hard to explain that. So I think that's the challenge for me is um, just, you know, trying to navigate that because it's so hard. You want to say like, yes, someday I'll write it. But like, when was that, you know, I have a series that stopped abruptly in 2012. It was my first book series. It was only two books. And then the publisher drop the mystery line and I still get emails like when's the next book coming I was like I do have the rights back but when will I have time to write and and publish an indie book for this series so that's kind of a challenge my next question for each of you is as hard as it is to imagine there are people out there who have never read a cozy mystery so we have to start from that that point um if you were to encounter one of these people and they said I'd like to read something cozy what um, would you suggest to them what were the authors or books that got you hooked on the cozy genre um I can go first for that one I so I started reading cozies because my mom read cozies and this was back when I don't even know if they had the moniker cozy at the time this was like uh I was probably in middle school so like the 90s 
And um, so she was reading like Donna Andrews, Erlene Fowler. So those were the really the authors um, that introduced me to the genre. And then I don't know if you remember back then, like Kensington used to release cozies in these hardback little chunky books. Mm -hmm. I thought they were the cutest thing in middle school. <laughs> I, just, like, I thought yeah. they were so cute. Joanne Fluke's first book was what released like that. Yeah, so I would go to the library and get all these like chunky little Kensington books. <laughs> and now the fact, you know, 20s, all these years later, I'm writing for Kensington. And I remember when they picked me up, like to add me to their corral of authors, I was talking to my editor. I was like, I loved your guys' chunky little books. And he didn't know what I was talking about because he was a young <laughs> editor at the time. I was like, no, it was cool. Like, you should bring that back. It probably wasn't cost effective, but it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, for me, I I honestly didn't even know what a cozy mystery was when I first started writing them. I had my PI mystery series and my agent and I were talking and she said, you should try writing a cozy because you have a great voice for that. And I was like, what's a cozy? <laughs> so I went to my bookstore, my we had a used bookstore and I just bought a stack and you know, proceeded to read, read, read and love them. But uh, some of my first that I guess kind of got me interested in, I thought, yes, I can do this was Avery Ames, her quiche, um, the good, the long quiche goodbye, I think it was, Kay Collins and her flower shop series. I enjoyed, I read that early on. Um, so just, there were just a, you know, a few that stick out in my mind, but you know, I just read so many at the beginning. I think they kind of blur together before I actually started writing them. I actually started with what you might call pre-cozies. I mean, they were cozies as you look back now, but they were never called that. And so I was reading Carolyn Hart's books, mm -hmm. um, Joan Hess, uh, Dorothy Cannell. I mean, and all these books are available and they're great fun and they're really good mysteries. Um, who else did I say? Uh, Nancy Picard did a series like that. And just bringing it up to the present, one of my favorite writers is Roberta Isleg, who also writes as um, Lucy Burdett and Cherry mentioned her. I mean, she now has a Key West food series, but she previously had a golfer series and a psychologist series. And I enjoyed all of her books. I, I am going to go way back to <laughs> and um, Lillian Jackson Braun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that series was fabulous. And um, Anne George Southern Sisters series. Those books are so good. And so they really had the humor in them and um, likable characters and everything. And right before I got the chance to write the proposal, for um, the garage sale series, I'd edited Clammed Up for Barbara Ross. And it just was so good and warm and humorous. And um, it's not ha-ha humorous, but she just always has these interesting little asides and observations that I really loved and the quirky characters. And it really inspired me when I was writing the garage sale mysteries. 
That's great. Um, we are rapidly running out of time, but before we have to conclude, I do have um, a question for each of you. So I'm going to start with Maya. You wrote a really fabulous piece on the roots of the culinary um, mysteries. And I don't think people realize how far back it goes. We think it's a modern kind of concept. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how authors like Rex Tout and Dorothy Sayers really introduced mystery readers to food? Yes, um, food is really part of not just co cozy mysteries, but it, part of mysteries from the start. Uh, and there are even, um, the what you're referring to, of course, is the cookbooks that came out based on uh, what's, what foods are mentioned in Sherlock Holmes stories, uh, the ones that uh, the Lord Peter Whimsey cookbook is one of them, and of course the Nero Wolf cookbook. And these all came out in um, the 70s and 80s. Well, I think 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And what they did, I think, was um, speak to a desire on the part of readers to know more about the lives of these detectives who were fictional, but food is mentioned in all of those uh, writings. And now it's a little bit of a stretch with Sherlock Holmes, um, uh, but he's always rushing around and, and he always has breakfast and that's when uh, some new client comes in in the middle of breakfast or, you know, they're on the, on the road and they go to train places and train stations to have tea. Um, but I think that, you know, obviously with the um, Rex Stout's Nero Wolf series and Dorothy Sayers, Lord Peter Whimsey series, I mean, you've got a detective who's very much into food and food is the meals that they are eating are described and they're really rather gourmet meals. So it wasn't such, such a stretch to come out with cookbooks like that. And I really think those were, those cookbooks were very popular. In fact, the Nero Wolf one went into a second printing in the 1990s. And they were really um, responding to readers' desires to know more about how everyday things happened in the lives of their detectives. And they were precursors, I think, of culinary mysteries. That's great. Um, Amanda, you've written so many books about the Amish. Why do you think people are so fascinated by them and their culture? Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting for me because I lived um, in Amish country and it wasn't until I moved back to like a more urban area that I actually started writing about them. And it it was really at the suggestion of my agent. We were trying to think of new ideas and I just happened like off the cuff, tell her that I used to be a librarian in Amish country. And she's like, oh, you know, and this was like at the height of like bonnet books in every Cracker Barrel across the country, you know, and, um, and like I said before, I was like, well, I'll do it, but it has to be a mystery. Um, but I think, I think it's the simplicity uh, that people are really drawn to, um, the close-knitness of the community. And then I think also the little bit of like, what's really going on in there? Like, you know, the, the mystery aspect, the, the, the wondering, you know, when we're so immersed in 
you know, watching like celebrities do things and like on the internet and, and like what would draw a person to want to like be so separated from the wider culture. So I think that's just really fascinating uh, to people. And then I also think it's really fascinating people that they're like, so, you know, it, it depends from district to district, but so strict about technology. Like, why don't they drive cars? Why don't they have phones in their houses or why are they not using electricity? So um, it's curiosity, I think, by and large is the big thing, um, the simplicity, but curiosity, why someone would choose to live like that. Sherry, what is it like being an inventor who has a patent? Oh. <laughs> well, um, we're terrible at marketing, so <laughs> it's no different than pre-inventor life, but um, we, so I was shopping with my daughter and she was looking at sunglasses. This is not any great life-saving thing for anybody. <laughs> and she was trying to decide on two pairs. One had green and black um, cheetah print and the other was like pink and black cheetah print. And she's going, oh, which one I sh should I get? And I was like, wouldn't it be cool if you could just switch something out and pop it on? to change the look of your sunglasses. And um, that sent us on this journey. And now you can buy the actual sunglasses <laughs> on our website. So. That's cool. <laughs> it was fun. Writing a patent is hard. Getting it approved is hard. And, um, but it was, it was, it's been an interesting experience. I feel like there's a cozy series in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> what What's your sunglasses called? I want to look at it. Oh, it, so it's um, the website is soul, S-O-L, and then V-Y-B-E.com. So soulvibe.com. Soul vibe. Okay. <laughs> great. We're all writing that down. Yeah. <laughs> Winnie, when I was looking at your books and some things that you had written, I was fascinated by what you had said to someone else when you told them that for you, villains are the most challenging character for you to write. Can you kind of explain that? Um, well, I think probably because I don't have much of a dark side, <laughs> you know, to, you know, I, I think about people who write really dark villains, you know, and, and sort of dark stories like Stephen King and uh, I old friend of mine is Alison Brennan, who writes incredibly dark things. And I think, oh my God, what would it be like to be in their head all the time? I wrote two darker stories, which I actually love very, very much. Um, and I think they're some of my best, but I couldn't sustain writing like that because I just don't like to live in that dark dark place and so when it comes to writing the villain you really have to put yourself in their shoes to figure out why would they kill this person you know what what's behind it unless you have a situation where it's you know accidental or you know there are situations where it's 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 not you know this sort of darkness that's pervading but in general um yeah just kind of putting myself in that place to where I'm committing a murder in my mind is <laughs> just a little more challenging and then you know the in my 
opinion, the villain really drives the story because your protagonist, your sleuth is reacting to everything that the villain is doing to hide or to misdirect. And uh, so they have to be very clever and they have to be a worthy adversary to the sleuth that you've created. So in a lot of ways, I think that those villains are, you know, more important and you have to make sure that they're very well-rounded and that they really um, create a sort of the yin-yang for your sleuth. You know, your sleuth is well-established and you're carrying that person on through multiple books in a series. And you're creating each, each book has a new villain that you're creating that has to sort of, you know, rise above and, and be a real challenge. So I don't know, I, I think they're very, very important, but also can be very challenging to write. It's great insight. Um, before we wrap up, I'd like each of you to tell us how readers can learn more about you and your books, if you have websites, social media, and remind us again about your latest book. And we'll start with you, Winnie. Okay. Um, well, I'm everywhere on social media. So uh, Winnie Archer is a pen name, and I write the rest of my books under my name name, <laughs> which is Melissa Bourbon. That's my actual maiden name. Uh, so I'm melissabourbon.com. You can find me that way on Facebook. I am bookishly underscore cozy on Instagram and on TikTok. And I also have writersparkacademy.com, which is a website for writers. And I have a podcast and online courses, including a course on how to write a cozy mystery. So I'm kind of all over, but you could find everything at melissabourbon.com and go from there. And then, um, so Bread Over Troubled Water came out in November, and um, my next book coming out is February 14th, and it's called The Trouble with Pushing Up Daisies, and it's in a, a series called The Trouble with Tumbleweed that's sort of a collaborative series I work on with a couple of other authors. And then um, my dressmaking series, three of them re-released late in 2022 the next three are coming out next month and then i'll be continuing that series with a halloween installment so lots of things going on that's great maya okay i'm not in quite so many social media locations <laughs> um, i have uh, a facebook page called maya corrigan books and i also blog at mystery lovers kitchen which is a um a group of 12 culinary mystery writers who share recipes and writing stories. And that's a kind of fun one to visit. And then I have my website, which is mayacorrigan.com. And um, I don't just talk about my books on that website. Uh, I have a section that deals with um, fun facts in, in about food history, like the dark history of gingerbread or candy corn calamities and so on. And there's a section called Mystery 101 that contains little vignettes of, that you may not know about, for example, the connection between Poe and Lincoln, and there is one, or what um, uh, Sherlock Holmes and Dracula have in common. They're just, you know, kind of little fun essays. So, um, and then I do share recipes and, a bunch of other things going on on the website, but it's all in one place and you can sign up for my newsletter there and I give out uh, a free book to one subscriber every time I send out a newsletter. And what's your new book? 
my new book, yes, thank you, <clears throat> comes out, I think, in November or, or late October. It's called A Parfait Crime, and it, um, it has suspects from two different uh, aspects of life in Bayport. Uh, Val's, Val's best friend is, and her grandfather and her boyfriend are involved in a reader's theater production of Agatha Christie's A Mousetrap. Uh, when one of the other actors involved is killed and Val takes over that part. And at the same time, there's a new spa opening in town. And there's some suggestion that the murdered woman had something to do with somebody at that spa. So par a parfait crime. Amanda? Um, so my, my book, my most recent book is Honeymoons Can Be Hazardous, um, and it uh, came out in December, and then the next book to come out will be In Farm's Way, that's in my Farm to Table Mysteries, and that'll come out in February, and then spring, I think May, Blueberry Blunder comes out, which is the next candy shop book. Um, and then I, my historical Emily Dickinson mystery, uh, I heard a fly buzz when I died comes out in September. Wanted to get that out before I forgot. All of that. <laughs> Sometimes I forget, but as far as where to find me online, you can find, um, all my links on amandaflower.com. Um, and I do have an email newsletter that you can sign up for there. And I'm most active on Facebook. So I have a great um, active community of readers and people on there. Uh, if you want to follow me because you just like cats, I have six cats. And there are so many cat pictures on the internet that I am responsible for. And I do not apologize for it because I love my cats. Um, but the cats also have their own Instagram account. So if you search for my name on Instagram, it's just cat pictures. Like I don't add, I mean, sometimes I put my cats with my books, but by and large, it's just the cats. Um, so those are the main places where to find me. I also have Twitter and things like that. Um, but honestly, it mostly feeds from those two main social medias. Um, but yeah, I, I, I particularly enjoy um, Facebook. That's where you'll probably interact with me the most. Sherry, what about you? So Rum and Choke is the book that just came out. And um, you can find me at sherryharrisauthor.com. I blog with a group of women called Wicked Authors. And um, we have lots of guests and think you all have been on at some point and do giveaways and just have a good time there. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook too. So that's where you can find me. Thanks so much, John. Yes, thank so, you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. thank you all for taking time to visit virtually the poison pen. I can't believe an hour went by so quickly. I'd like to thank our authors for sharing time with us today. And I'd like to thank all of you for tuning in to another virtual author chat at the Poison Pen Bookstore. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 
100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.